0: All right, let me start by uh, on the front side where it says at the top, Micah, the prophet of justice for the poor, and our, our main point. Judgment for covenant breakers who hurt the poor, is followed by restoration. And next is our summary of the book of Jonah. Our sixth out of 12, you know, it's a unit of 12 Stories, 12 Minor Prophets. We're on our sixth one, we're calling this a God Theater, as if these were plays, written descriptive plays, or presentations of stories that happen in order to learn about God. So our sixth Minor Prophet God Theater presentation of Micah is a series of judgments against social injustice. There were, of course, the ever-present sins of idolatry and deceit, but Micah especially condemned those who oppressed the poor by seizing their land. Though the people had been disobedient to the covenant, God remained faithful. So for God to be consistent and faithful, not only in judgment, but faithful in restoration, he must apply the covenant breakers, to the covenant breakers, the covenant curses. Predictably, though, we find in our mini-theater, again today, the theme of judgment unto restoration, judgment unto salvation. So when Micah wrote a future time of restoration for sinners, we won't be surprised right, to find that later. Since God was faithful to the, in the past to his promises to Abraham, and we'll see that next Sunday, Lord willing, God will also be faithful in the future to raise up a ruler out of Bethlehem. Chapter 5, verse 2. God's restoration depends not on man's efforts, but solely on his mercy, his forgiveness, and his sovereign intervention. Um, I'm going to pause for station identification for a moment. The reason the curtains are up there is because on a sunny day, I look like a silhouette. So that's why it's there. And then, um, secondly, what was the second thing I was going to say? Hmm. So much for station identification. All right, I'll come back to it. Well-known quotes embedded in MICA. So, oh, what I was going to say is this, this handout covers two weeks. So our goal is not to cover all of Micah today. That was my second station identification announcement. Chapter um, one through three, hopefully, maybe into half of four, And we'll cover the rest, but it's done intentionally. Don't worry if we do more intro today, and then next time uh, more of a summary. And don't worry if we dig in more to chapters 1 and 2. It's important to have those understood correctly to get the rest of the book, and we can summarize more next week. So we're staying on schedule. So well-known quotes embedded in Micah. Some of these are especially well-known to you, as I'll mention next time. Uh, Chapter 4, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be lifted up above the hills. Maybe that's not quite as familiar, but the next one should be. Chapter 4, 3. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. And if you don't know those, you certainly know this one. Chapter 5, 2. You, Bethlehem, from you shall come forth a ruler in Israel. Have you ever gone through a Christmas without hearing that or receiving a card with that written on it? Um, Chapter 6, 8. Of course, um, well known uh, verses. In the book of Micah, what does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. And then lastly, chapter 7, verse 19. Uh, Especially those in this church, you you might have heard this more often. I love to use this as a call to worship. Um, Micah chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. Who is a God like you, who will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea? Moving on to the next section on your handout, the man Micah and the times when he was speaking and writing. So a little bit more here. The name Micah, it's a shortened version of his name. So you know um, the name Candy. You know anyone named Candy? What is Candy typically shortened from? Candice. Yeah, we all know that one. Candy, Candace. So the problem is, this is really ancient stuff. So you would know this if you lived back then, but you don't, so my job is to bring it to you. Micah, everybody knew, knows, would be shorthand for Micaiah. And the The name Micaiah means, who is like the Lord? So in Hebrew, this is actually a one-word name, Micaiah, which is in itself tucked within there an entire sentence. And the sentence is posed as a question. Who is like the Lord? I've translated it. I wrote it on your handout for you. Also, um, it actually serves as an exclamation of praise because it's a rhetorical question. Who is like the Lord? The answer is supposed to be obvious. No one of course, is like the Lord, which that's what a rhetorical question does for us. So it really is saying, our God is great, isn't it? It's an exclamation of praise for God uh, within the name Micah, which is short for Micaiah. Our God is the greatest God. Our God is the only God. And so when Micah was born and got this name, it was more than simply this boy differentiated from this boy. They had a lot more meaning in names in the Old Testament days than we typically have, and so it was revealing the essence of the faith of his parents who named him. His parents desired that all praise be given to the Lord. In addition, this name, Micaiah, longer for the shortened Micah that we know, it even carries in a nutshell the whole message of the whole book of the prophet, in fact, his whole career of preaching. There is no other God than our God, and it starts off with judgment. There's no other God who can judge like our God judges, but it ends up giving mercy. There's no other God who can give mercy like our God gives mercy. Judgment unto restoration, he's better than anyone else at both judgment and restoration. So there's actually a book ends built on this name, so it begins with Micah's name. If you're open to the book of Micah, you see chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth. Right? So there's his name at the beginning, Micah. But if you'd like to also keep your finger there and then go to the last verses, um, you'll see the book ends what I'm about to talk about. Um, chapter 7, verses 18 through 20, if you go there. So the word of the Lord that came to Micah, and if the name means who is like God, then Micah starts with an ominous note of judgment that we'll start to study in verses 2 and 3. Who is like our God who judges like this? Be scared, right? However, the same book that starts with the unmatchable God in judgment ends in the explanation of the significance of his name. If you look at chapter 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you, comma, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression. Wait, I thought he was the God who's unmatchable in judgment, chapter 1. He is, but he's also the God who's unmatchable in passing over iniquity and pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression. He's both judgment and restoration. There's no God like Israel's covenant-keeping God who blesses his people despite our waywardness. So the name Micah is at the start, and the name Micaiah explained is at the end, chapter 7:18. I call that bookends. In um, a full book shelf, you might have this little wood or metal piece on one end, a wood or metal piece on the other end that holds all the books up in place so they don't topple over. Bookends from the start to the finish is what we think of with something that starts a book and ends a book. So Micah concludes his book not with the continued dark gloom of judgment, but rather with the bright hope of restoration. In fact, if you go to chapter 7, verse 15 and then look at chapter 7, verse 19. First, I'll I'll make the point I'm going to make, and then I'll read them to you. Just as God hurled the Egyptian army who had enslaved his people into the depths of the sea at the founding of God's nation, even more miraculously, God takes the sins that had enslaved his people and hurls those sins into the depths of the sea to be remembered no more. Now I'll read chapter 7, verse 15, followed by chapter 7, verse 19. At 715, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. It's God's idea to draw your attention to that. What did God do when he brought them out of Egypt, as I just said, through the Egyptian army into the sea? Now go to verse 19. He will again have compassion on us, he will tread our iniquities underfoot, you will cast all our sins where? Into the depths of the sea. It's intentional. It's bookends from start, God of judgment to end, God of restoration. Micah, Micaiah. All right, that's the name. We're moving on to his resume. In the middle of your handout, under the man Micah, under his resume, there's a ton of info in verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1. A lot of information in just a few words, so give me a few minutes here. Um, This is the prose part. We're getting into the poetry part in a moment, so hang in there. The beginning is not really a sentence. Instead, it's a statement without the other part that makes up a sentence, It's missing the nominative. uh, nominatives, for those of you who are English people. I can barely say nominative, apparently. All right, it reads like the title of an article, like the topic on the top of a term paper in school. The Word of the Lord. See how it starts? You're in chapter 1, verse 1. The Word of the Lord what? And then the Word of the Lord is further described, but not with the other part of a sentence. It's just not a sentence. It tells us to whom it came, when, and concerning what. But this way of opening the book with this title type of start emphatically tells the audience what you're about to read, you need to know, comes directly from the Lord. That's the main emphasis and the impression that's granted to you initially. It comes from the great I Am, the Most High God. And also notice the word, word, is singular. So it doesn't read words from the Lord but it reads the word of the Lord, singular. See that? What's the significance of it being singular? It means that the entire book is the statement of God. So as we go through, God is saying, as you read my book, don't get distracted by the fact that I hired a prophet and called him to speak it and then write it. This is for me, God says. Um, Always remember that the invisible and glorious God can be heard throughout this book. All of it is his word. So the first thing we learn as Micah opens is that the source of his message is not Micah himself, but rather God. That's a little bit different from the start of the other prophetic books. Let me just give you a few quick examples. It's not to say the other books aren't the word of God. Of course, they're all the word of God. But I'm showing you what the emphasis is here as compared to how it's presented elsewhere. I'll read uh, four others. Isaiah 1.1, the vision of Isaiah, son of Amos, which he saw concerning. See how that's different? Jeremiah 1.1, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came. Amos 1.1, the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel. One more, Nahum one, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book, the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. So, after Micah 1.1 begins with a controlling statement, the word of the Lord, then Following this introduction, the important topics further described by two clauses that read like subtitles. The first clause gives us the human author's name, in addition to what we already had, the divine author's name, which is the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah. He gives his covenant name. And now we're given the human author's name, Micah. And this clause also provides us with the mode of communication between the divine author and the human author. Do you see it? That came to. That came to. It hardly matters who the person is to whom it came. What's still being emphasized is it's the word of the Lord that came to. And God is bearing witness to himself throughout this revelation. Again, that's being underscored. Because this is so, God accomplishes his purposes with his word. Some who hear God's word will receive it with repentance and um, then have a softening of heart. Others will have a hardening of heart. We, we know this from... Um, Isaiah fifty five verses ten and eleven. By the way a contemporary of Micah was Isaiah, so I'll quote from him twice today. So Isaiah fifty five ten As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Isaiah fifty five, ten and eleven. Notice that both in that Isaiah passage and here in Micah 1.1, the power is not in the words themselves. The power is not in the human person who received the word and then spoke that word out. The power ever and always remains in God himself, for it's always the word of the Lord who sovereignly uses his word for his own ends to his own pleasure at every moment. You see how it circles back around to the Lord always? I think we can actually worship the Bible, which is idolatry, instead of worshiping God, whose word it is, a word of the Lord. So enough on that. We move forward. After his resume, look at his status. And here I simply mean that next phrase. The only identifying of this person of Micah that we get is two words. Of Moresheth. Oh, boy. Micah was identified solely by his hometown, which is actually more than we got, if you remember, from a couple of other, other prophets that we've studied, minor prophets we've studied already. Some of them we get quite a resume, some of them we get nothing, some of them we get just a tiny little bit, and here we get a tiny little bit. Rather than being identified through his father or through his family line, the only thing we get is of Moresheth. So the significance of this disclosure is that Micah was from a village of Moresheth And the readers need to understand that Micah was an outsider. Micah was not from inside Judah's capital city, Jerusalem. He's from a small town, a rural place, a village. It doesn't decrease his status as a prophet. It just says to you that he's not on the inner um, workings of the capital. He still had the identity of a called and professional prophet, if you will, one who belonged to the recognized class of persons across Israel Israel who had a voice, who shaped the nation's decisions with his prophecies. For example, I hope you don't get too sidetracked. I do want to show you this example to prove what I just said, that he does have status. He came from a village. It just means he's an outsider, but he still has the full status. So that's Just give me a moment here to give this example. It was Micah's prophecies to King Hezekiah that touched the king's heart and reshaped the way Judah was conducting itself and saved the nation from immediate catastrophe. We read this from 100 years later, 100 years after Micah, and it's from our recent favorite, Jeremiah, chapter 26, verses 16 to 19. When they were about to kill the prophet Jeremiah, listen to what was said. Then the officials and all the people said to the priests and prophets, This man, referring to Jeremiah, does not deserve the sentence of death, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. And certain of the elders of the land arose and spoke to all the assembled people, saying, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah king of Judah and said to all the people of Judah, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Did Hezekiah king of Judah and all Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had pronounced against them? But we are about to bring great disaster upon ourselves. Jeremiah 26, 16 to 19. What are they saying? They're saying, don't kill Jeremiah because he's just like the great Micah. (laughs) He actually speaks God's word. Be careful with this one. (laughs) They're comparing Jeremiah to... A prophet lived 100 years ago. It's kind of like we you know, celebrate the Reformers 500 years later. They're celebrating God's prophet, Micah. So my point, I hope you didn't get distracted. It's over. Come back now. Come back now. My point in reading all that is to show that even though Micah was an outsider, from outside the capital city of Jerusalem, he still had full-fledged status as a prophet, was recognized and remembers 100 years later. So now let's finish unpacking verse 1. We get the information that God sent his word during the days of three kings. All three kings are from Judah the south. Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And that gives us a time stamp for Micah's ministry. Lastly, we get the sentence listed out in the last phrase, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, pause here a moment. Those of you that were here the first week and have this first two weeks, if you see this on the back, remember this. If you have that with you or you want to look it up, you'll see that Micah is listed on the, the right side of the paper, which means he, he spoke to Israel as his audience, but he's also on the left side of the paper, which means he spoke to Judah as his audience. And by the way, you can also see Jeremiah is down here a hundred years later from what we were just covering. So what's unique about um, Micah, he's one of the prophets who spoke to both. And did I just lose my page? I think so. Okay back on track, his audience, uh, as I just showed you, uh, both Judah and the southern kingdom and Israel and the northern kingdom, and I'll show you on the map in a moment. Um, God caused Micah to see a message that was aimed at the people of Samaria, the city of Samaria, and the people of the city of Jerusalem. So both Judah, the southern kingdom, and Israel, the northern kingdom, are ones that Micah speaks to. And uh, his dates, therefore, we know from these three kings, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So he's about 750 B.C. to 700 B.C., and that's on your handout as well, his dates. And he's a contemporary of Isaiah and also, in a way, kind of people call him a mini-Isaiah. Micah is a mini-Isaiah, and all we mean is that both Isaiah and Micah have powerful messages delivered with dramatic and poetic beauty. If you like Isaiah, you're going to like Micah. So the context was a time of wealth. And Micah denounced the wealthy for oppressing the poor. And those years were an extremely troubled time in their history, Israel's history. Kings of the enemy Assyria kept on invading and invading and invading. And they would take little parts of the land and shrink them. And Judah, the southern kingdom, almost fell entirely in 701 B.C., You can read about that in 2 Kings, chapters 18 to 20. But during Micah's lifetime, the northern kingdom did fall in 722 BC. So the structure of the book as a whole, the book of Micah, has three sections alternating between warning and hope. And one more note, someone had asked me about the order of the minor prophets. I want to give a programming note here. Um, The 12 books of the minor prophets have an essentially chronological arrangement in the Hebrew Bible. And that order is carried over into the Latin Bible and carried over into the English Bible, which is why we have them in the order we do, which is why I'm studying them uh, in the way they are in the table of contents in English Bibles. So, what have we seen so far? Before we transition to the good stuff, thank you for hanging in there with the more dry intro. From the first, the information-packed verse, we already know that God wrote this book. And that God sent this book through a man that God called Micah, or Micaiah. We know the historical setting in which God sent it and the people to whom God addressed the message in the book. All that is conveyed in 18 Hebrew words. It's 29 words in English. That's the prose start to the book, well-suited to give us this information in a jam-packed way. Prose is over. For those of you that love prose, I'm so sorry. For those of you that prefer poetry, welcome, and here we go. Um, Here's a form of language now well-suited to elevate us to hear the universal truths of a worldwide application that God is saying to all of us through Micah. You ready? Here's verse 2. Shema. It starts with the Hebrew word shema, which means to hear, to listen, or to heed. So the very first word of the prophecy in poetry, in the poem, verse 2, is the word hear in English. It sets the tone and the scene in which the following message from God is to be understood and received. The word actually convenes a judicial process. What do I mean? The best way I can try to help you understand how the original readers would have received this word Shema at the start is if I ask you to imagine suddenly we're in a courtroom. Are you with me? We're in a courtroom now. And the bailiff comes and he starts saying really loud to the whole room, All rise, honorable judge of the court now presiding. Take your seats. The court is now officially convened. If that were to happen, you get the sense of what just happened with the word Shema coming across. It a courtroom scene. Sorry if I said that too loud for those of you listening on live stream. All right, so why are we in court? Because God has summoned us all to court and God has a case against us. Wait, what did you say? God has a case against me? Exactly. The whole population of the earth. Let's read verse 2 together. Hear, you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his temple. Wow, does that sound like poetry? It's rather dramatic and intense, don't you think? We're into the big judgment stuff now. We're past all the intro. This is serious. Whatever God is starting to deal with here is in this sudden courtroom, and we are included. You have a message that God is sending you. It's a concern to everyone. It applies to all human beings, everyone you've ever met. This applies to them. Why? Because this God bears the title Lord. And he said, it's the word of the Lord to you. It means he's superior over all of us, and all of us are servants to him. God addresses all humans. There's other places he does this. For example, Isaiah, I'll quote a second time from Isaiah, his contemporary. Isaiah 34, 1. Draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. So if you're following on your handout now, we're on the next section of the outline, Micah 1, verses 2 through 7, which are summarized, since God was willing to judge his own nation, he will judge all nations, which is the point I'll make now from verses 2 through 7. So first, let me show you the overall structure of our courtroom scene, verses 2 through 7, and then we'll we'll dig into the content a bit more. So verse 2 introduces God as judge, getting everyone's attention. The judge is entering. Verses 3 and 4, God also is the prosecuting attorney. He comes with accusations. Verse 5, the presentation and development of those accusations, he'll fill it out and explain what he means. Verse 6, God the judge announces the judgment. All of a sudden, court is over. It doesn't take weeks or months in this court. All of a sudden, the verdict is arrived at. And verse 7, God explains the sentence and how it'll be carried out because the verdict has been announced already, the results of his actions of judgment. Okay, so you get the scene. It's going to move pretty quick. So one thing we didn't say yet, who's the culprit? We kind of hinted that it's everybody, but in the courtroom scene, in the poetry and the drama of our mini theater, we have to know who's being accused. Who's the culprit? Well, it's Samaria, the majestic capital of Israel, Samaria, the northern kingdom. How do we know? Samaria is named in verses 1. Remember, we already saw it in verse 1. Also in verses 5 and 6, if you're looking for it, you'll see it there. Who else is the culprit? Jerusalem also named in verse 1, also named in verse 5. All right, so we have the whole courtroom scene. And why would God gather all peoples, all nations? If he has a problem with Samaria, if he has a problem with Jerusalem, why are we all included in the courtroom? Why would God gather all peoples, the whole earth, all the nations in verses 2 through 4? He summons all the nations to watch As the prosecutor of heaven accuses Samaria because of the main point I've already said and is written on your handout. Since God is willing to judge his own chosen people, God is willing to judge all nations. Be warned. Wake up. All right, so now we go a little bit deeper in these verses. We understand that the courtroom scene and the structure is the accused. Now we fill in the details. Verse two, God is so angered at the wickedness, he's pictured as getting up and leaving his holy temple to come and conduct court and do battle himself. Verse 3, he comes from a certain place high above, which verse 2 had said was his holy temple. Verse 4, there are cosmic disturbances that accompany God's arrival from afar, such as mountains melting under him, the valleys splitting open like wax before the fire, the mountains and valleys starting to flow like waters poured, pouring down a steep place. Everything is melting before God as he arrives. What do we have here? We have a cosmic reversal in the largest scale imaginable. What God the creator had formerly created and put together, he's now uncreating and ungluing and causing to melt by his presence. It's the opposite of creation. In verse 5, the accusation is that the house of Israel sinned, which is, of course, a breach of their covenant with God, and furthermore, Samaria and Jerusalem broke this covenant with God. So verse 6, God gave his verdict and sentence. He will take Samaria and level it to the ground, including its fortifications because of her idolatry. And in verse 7, consequently, their false idols will be reused in the worship of another god. With so much devastation and the disappearance of a great city, it's interesting that the only the downfall of idols is mentioned here by god it shows the real target of the lord's vengeful actions is the idols so i've described it so that now you can absorb it when we read it we want to read it poetry is beautiful but it's scary ready verse 2 the lord is a jealous and avenging god the lord is avenging and wrathful the lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good. I am reading the wrong book. I'm in Nahum. What in the world? I had gone to chapter 7. You know what? He stopped me. Nobody stopped me. That was intense, but it was the wrong one. Okay. That's, two. That's after Thanksgiving. First Sunday of December. Come back. Okay. Whew. I was wondering, like, where is Samaria in my reading? Come on. You've got to help me, class. Okay. We're in Micah chapter one verse two. Whew. Here, here we go. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from His holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of His out of His place, and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. There you go. And the mountains will melt under Him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste for from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. All right, chapter uh, 1, verses 2 through, through 7. So the people had believed that in the forces of nature, life started again each springtime, and that there was a union between goddess and God, which ensured the fertility, uh, the fertility of the fields of crops and wombs for children. Uh, and their worship included the enactment of intercourse with other licentious rites and magic that went along with it. That was what they called worship, okay? Because it's all about the earth and Mother Earth and springtime. You get on this, you see this, right? So the ancient scene resembles today's new morality, uh, destroying modern society and including infecting apostate churches so that former churches have actually become pagan temples, to be honest. These modern so-called churches are more interested in making their parishioners happy than holy so that their false leaders condone all sorts of sexual immorality. What will God say about those churches? Same as we see in our passage here in Micah 1, verses 2 through 7. The lampstand of those churches will be removed, as the Apostle John puts it in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. So the problem here in Micah chapter 1 was not exclusively the idol's, and idol worship. But also, along with the idol worship, was all the attending twisted value systems, such as the apostle Peter, or Paul writes in Romans 1, verses 18 to 31, how they were given over to homosexuality and everything else. So their fixation here in Samaria and Jerusalem that Micah is addressing on idols had seduced the great city of Samaria to break covenant with God and commit crimes those very same seductive idols with us today. Money, illicit sexual pleasure, mind and mood-altering substances, seeking happiness rather than holiness as God defines it. So Micah addresses two audiences, not simply Samaria and Jerusalem now, I'm not talking about that. I'm saying two audiences in terms of the people of God and everybody else. Uh, Two audiences, we could say Samaria and the nations. He's addressing covenant people and non-covenant people. So he's addressing everybody. We just have them in two categories. Micah has two audiences. It's not alone. Jesus himself, when you read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, had two audiences. The crowds and the disciples. I think every missionary, I think every minister is speaking to God's people and also to the world. It's two audiences. It's the dual audience that's important for us to notice as we study the book of Micah. What God said to Samaria about idolatry serves as a paradigm for all idolaters everywhere. If the people of God in Samaria shouldn't be doing it, the people anywhere shouldn't be doing it. They're all created by God. They all should be coming to God for worship. Now, how God deals with Israel is a pattern for how God will deal with all people. Those who repent will be saved, and it's still true today. Second Corinthians six, two. Now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Or Second Thessalonians one verses seven to ten. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Does this kind of sound a little bit like the start of Micah? Listen to this. With Micah one seven two to seven in mind. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Second Thessalonians 1, 7-10. So we have both an Old Testament and a New Testament message. We have a message for the church and for the nations and for the world. This is a pretty important book, the book of Micah, it turns out. Let's go to our next section. Uh, Micah, if you're on your handout, Micah 1, 8 through 16, which is a stylized warning against the nation about coming exile. Here's where we get to use our map. Hope you all have a handout. On the front side is our outline, and the back side is our map. So, now we have a prophecy against Judah, as it's stated in verse 9. And here the structure is not a courtroom, so leave the courtroom behind. You with us? We're moving forward. A different scene. Now the scene is a funeral. And what we have is a funeral song. Verse 8, Micah's called to grieve in order to identify with the people's grief and their humility, which is why Micah would walk about stripped and naked. Anybody want to be a prophet? <laughs> Verse 8, For this, says Micah, I will lament and wail, I will go stripped and naked, I will make lamentation like the jackals, which is a, a wild animal, and mourning like the ostriches. Okay, there's still openings, if anybody wants to... God's messenger. All right. He's supposed to identify through mourning a ritual that symbolized captivity to um, walk a route about in that way. So let's see the structure and then go back to the content, much like we did for the courtroom scene. What's the funeral scene like? Okay, verses 10 through 15, we're going to see Micah on your map, and I'll point out the, the places, use towns, the names of the towns as puns for destruction and exile. You know how the name Micah is shorthand for the whole message of the book? Now the names of the towns are shorthand for what God will do there. And I want you to see it not as a modern person, okay? It feels cutesy. It feels elementary. Kids make poems. Isn't that nice how he's attaching um, you know, place names to what God will do there. Please don't see it that way. It's not, you know, the kind of preacher who's a little too sing-songy and everything rhymes. That's kind of how it strikes us when I say this to you. And I don't want you to take it that way. I want you to take it as, this is extremely serious. And Micah used this as the best way to get across to the people and get their attention. And so just accept that it's foreign, accept that it's distant, but accept that it's serious, Okay. I'll give you a little bit of a a help, or or try to understand. Modern examples might be Menominee Falls is going to fall. Bangor will be gored. Walworth will hit the wall. Maguana Go has to go. So it sounds cutesy, right? It's a little too, like, eh, I don't want to hear preaching like that. I can't take it seriously. So I just want you to understand how it sounded to the original hearer in Hebrew. But to them it came across a lot more seriously. You know how some people today put stock into bad things superstitiously? Number 13. Um, how many shoe, pairs of shoes do you have? 13. Oh. Do you see how that might like get someone's attention? You have 13 pairs, pairs of shoes? Or, um, hey, um, What did you find there in the grass? I found a four-leaf clover. Oh, you know, the same kind of superstitious, incredible reaction. You found a four-leaf clover. Oh, you didn't step on a crack on the sidewalk, did you? You saw a black cat or unknowingly walk underneath a ladder. I'm not saying you, but it's saying our culture. Would you just admit that our culture has a lot of people who put way too much stock in this sort of thing? That's my best attempt to get you to see the import or the power of Micah using these place names this way. So verses 10 through 15, he's going to be doing that. In verse 16, he's going to end the chapter by asking the people to join in the grieving because their people are going to go into exile. So here's the extended wordplay of the names of the towns and their doom. Um, It's not a clever word game for amusement. He's trying to get the attention of his audience and it puts all their superstitions together at once and pushes his audience to the point of developing a true and holy fear of God, repenting to God for their sins. So, The ancient Hebrews placed value on names for their significance um, and how it sounded. So look at your map, all right? If you look at the middle of the page, a little bit to the right, you see a big star? The star next to it says Samaria. So that's the capital city of the northern kingdom, Samaria. Now go straight down from there, you see another star. That star is Jerusalem. Sorry it doesn't have the word Jerusalem on there. If I had realized it, I would have written the word Jerusalem on there. But it says the word temple in a box. So you get it, right? That star is Jerusalem. So you have the capital of the northern kingdom, Samaria. Capital of the southern kingdom, Jerusalem. And then you see the dotted line across the middle of the page, separating the north from the south. That uh, tells you the demarcation line between the northern and southern kingdom. Okay, now you're ready to start studying verse 9. Verse 9 starts, and Micah has been speaking to Samaria in the north. Um, There's a transition from the northern kingdom to the southern kingdom, and notice the start of verse 9. Her wound is incurable. He's still referring to Samaria. Her wound. What's wrong with the city of Samaria Samaria still has spiritual sin. Her wound is incurable. In other words, she's going down. This is serious. She's under his judgment. God is coming in judgment. But now it's spreading. It's spreading for the north to the south. How do I know that? This is what I want you to notice. If you look at verse 9 very carefully, the next words are, And it has come to Judah. Okay? I don't want you to miss that. Her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. So here, Judah is specifically mentioned, the south. So God's judgment has spread from the north to the south. And behind this, Jerusalem will be spared. Notice the next words. It has reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. Amazon delivery comes. They put it on your doorstep, right? They don't put it inside your house. They put it on your doorstep. Now I know there's technology to do that. Please don't get distracted with that. They put it on your, on your doorstep, right? It's not in your house, it's on your doorstep. So if they come to the gate of Jerusalem, they aren't in the city. So judgment has reached there, and it's in Judah, the south, but it did not enter the city of Jerusalem yet. God will provide a future way for the remnant of Jerusalem to survive, is what that means. In order for God to remain faithful to his covenant promises to save his people, he leaves the room open for the remnant. Jerusalem will eventually be leveled, but a small group in exile remains possible to return someday. Now look at verse 10, and if you look back to your map, you'll start to see down the key. So 11 cities in Micah chapter 1, verses 10 to 15. And if you look at the the key on the upper left, 1 through 11, those numbers appear on your map. So look at number one, Gath, and then look for number one within your map, and you should find the word Gath right next to it. I hope you have that. So Gath is where we are next. Micah's been speaking to Samaria, um, and now he here's number one in the next category is Gath. Um, Verse 10, Micah picks up a saying from King David, tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. What does that mean? As a reminder to the foreign people not to gloat when God's people are being disciplined by God. For King David, it it was when the house of Saul fell and the Philistines, remember Gath was a Philistine city then, the Philistines should not gloat for Micah's day, it applies to the fall of Judah in the same way, the place of David's descendants. Unbelievers are warned not to gloat. 2 Samuel 1.17, David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son. 2 Samuel 1.20, tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, another Philistine city, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. David was saying to his enemies, don't you dare rejoice at the death of King Saul and my friend Jonathan. And if you remember, this gloating was also an issue in our study recently in the book of Obadiah, verses 12 to 13, how Edom was not supposed to gloat or rejoice in the day of their brother's misfortune. Okay, so what does all this mean? It means Micah has a heart. Micah's grieving as he's bringing the message of judgment. He's grieving deeply for each town as he goes through. Just like David did for his good friend Jonathan and his king Saul, Micah is truly sad about what's coming on each city. So in his grief, Micah is reflecting poetically on each name and what it meant for the dark destiny of their destruction coming. These reflections from Micah are puns on the names of the towns as bad signs of God's judgment coming. So verse um, 10 continues with the next one. Um, You know that um, lady on TV, Oprah? That's how you say this next one, uh, Beth, Oprah. Uh, Dust town, Um, dusty, a house of dust is how you could translate that. So he's basically saying, citizens will roll in the dust. God crushed Satan and made him crawl in the dust, Genesis 3.15. So that's grieving. And it leads to death. We all return to dust. So you see the picture and how it all goes. Verse 11 is the next one, Shafir. So number three, if you find number three on your chart, the word Shafir appears on your map also. It's beautiful, translated beauty town. So Shafir in Hebrew sounds like the word for beautiful. It's pretty easy, one-to-one correlation for these words in the original language. So Micah said it will not be beautiful for long. Instead of beauty and glory, they'll find nakedness and shame. Right? Let me just read it from your English Bible. So we're in chapter um, 1, verse 10. Tell it not in Gath. Weep not at all in Oprah, Roll yourselves in the dust. So um, those who are called dust would roll in the dust. Doing my best to help you see that. Okay, f- um, 11b, Zanin, number four on your map. Zanin, or coming out or going forth town. Zanin sounds like Hebrew for exit, or going away. Micah grieved that the city will not go out to face its enemies. Instead, the city will lock itself inside of its wall like animals trapped in a cage and remain there until the city dies. Pretty rough. Instead of going forth on behalf of the kingdom of God, they'll cower behind imaginary walls at the time of his coming. Like Proverbs eighteen eleven. a rich man's wealth is his strong city. Like a high wall in his imagination. He thinks he can hide behind his money, for example. So chapter eleven or verse eleven pass on your way, O inhabitants of Shafir in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Zainan do not come out. The lamentation of Beth-Ezel shall take away from you its standing place. So the, the next one is Beth Ezel, number five on your map, if you can find where that is. The number five appears, but not the name Beth-Ezel, so don't make yourself crazy looking for it. Um, Bethazel means takeaway town. Um, Micah turned to the next village, and he thought it sounded like nearby. Uh, They'll not be near, but rather be separate and grieving so severely there'll be no help to other cities geographically nearby. Whatever humans are not supported by Christ the rock will be taken away by Christ when he comes to defeat all other kingdoms. Uh, How are we doing? I'm almost out of time. Let me try to finish these other cities, and then we'll stop. So um, the next one... Maroth, number six on your map. Bitter town, uh, hurting people become bitter people. Uh, people who look to this world for relief from pains of life will experience a bitter end. First Thessalonians five four. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come on them. Um, they will not escape. And uh, here in Micah one twelve, the people in, in Bittertown disaster has come from the Lord. If you see it in your English in verse twelve, disaster has come from the Lord. There you have that phrase again, to the gate of Jerusalem, like we saw in verse 9. Verse 13, Lachish, um, which is number 7 on your map, to to the steeds. It's a very difficult one to translate. It could be chariot horses. Like um, Anheuser-Busch Company today is famous for having a team of horses owned solely for publicity purposes. Eight beautiful Clydesdale horses, which are heavy, mighty, and beautiful. Work horses, originally bred in Scotland, Also, the ancient city of Lachish was known like that for breeding these giant, beautiful chariot horses. The idea is the horses will not be able to fight the judgment of God. So the horses will be harnessed to flee from God, and that will not be successful either. The concern of Micah here is that people who, instead of trusting God, trust the latest and greatest power and technology that man makes, such as chariots led by special horses, or today, you know, the technology of computers or fighter jets or whatever you want. Their technology will be worthless. In the time of God's judgment against sin, if the most advanced city falls, the rest of the nation will fall as well. And later when King Sennacherib conquered the city of Lachish, he considered it a significant conquest. And he later had artists make scenes of the battles to decorate his big big palace back in Nineveh. That's how significant Lachish was. Um, Next one is Moresheth Gath, bride town. Uh, It was Micah's hometown, remember Moresheth? So it sounded like betrothed, engaged, or fiancé. So Micah prophesied about the practice of giving a big wedding gift. It's actually a contract between two families in order to make a profit off the deal. Wedding city. Um, Arranged marriages to make money. Actually, what would happen is the whole city would become the bride. And the wedding gift is when the city comes under the authority of their cruel new husband, the invading army. Um, Next one is Akit which is uh, number nine on your map. Deception town, people who falsely place confidence in this world will be ripped off. You should be placing confidence in God. Uh, Merisa, number 10 on your map is possession town or conquered. Uh, we'll bring a conqueror to you. Whenever people look to gain possessions by conquering others, they themselves will be conquered. Last one is Adullam, number 11 on your map. This is the place of refuge for David when he was running from King Saul. Remember the cave of Adulam? It will happen again. Because the glory of Israel, the big leaders, will be forced to take refuge in the same area. So the conclusion uh, he draws in, in chapter 1 is an appeal to the mother city, Jerusalem, over the smaller villages of her children. They needed to grieve that their children were going into exile. So verse 16 says, Make yourselves bald and cut your hair, which is a way of grieving. Uh, for the children of your delight, make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. Um, How do we feel the force of this as modern people today? It's God's call for repentance, that they could somehow salvage this sad predicament, Um, but we are instead to turn to God from the age-old same gods of man's ingenuity, latest technology, money, sex, wine, or drugs, back to the worship of the one true and living God. So Micah was successful in his ministry to Jerusalem. Uh, The people repented. The turnaround was significant. It was remembered 100 years later, as we said. Uh, But Micah had preached anywhere from 16 to 25 years prior to this without success. How long have you prayed for a loved one? Have we prayed for our country that long? Some of you have. Uh, Galatians 6 9 says, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we'll reap if we don't give up. Winston, Winston Churchill, I'll end with this story. Winston Churchill was asked to speak at an elementary school where he himself was educated years ago. Uh, to give the reason how he came from that elementary school to become commander-in-chief of the British forces during World War II. The great Winston Churchill comes back, and these children, of course, they barely know who he is. But anyway, he's speaking to the world from the elementary school classroom, right? And so he famously said, maybe you've heard this, never give up. And his speech was over. No, no, he explained it further. Never give up. Never give up. Never, never give up. And then he was done. So in the Bible, we read, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. I think Paul is saying, God is saying, what Winston Churchill was saying. Never give up. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for every page of your word. Thank you for the book of Micah.